Trump's legal blows and Russia's military woes. Donald Trump falsely inflated his net worth by billions of dollars to unjustly enrich himself and to cheat the system. The New York Attorney General announces a lawsuit against former President Trump and his children for committing fraud. And an appeals court rules the Justice Department can regain access to classified documents seized at Trump's home. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it. Plus, and those who try to blackmail us with nuclear weapons should know the prevailing winds can also blow in their direction. Russian President Vladimir Putin issues an ominous threat and escalates the war as Ukraine's military makes territorial gains. Wherever you are, wherever you live, whatever you believe, that should make your blood run cold. At the United Nations, President Biden condemns Russia and rallies world leaders to support Ukraine. Next. This is Washington Week. Good evening and welcome to Washington Week. This week, former President Donald Trump had to endure a number of legal challenges. On Wednesday, New York Attorney General Letitia James announced the state is suing the former president and his three eldest children for fraud. The civil lawsuit alleges Trump and senior management at the Trump Organization fraudulently inflated the value of his real estate assets for financial benefit. The AG's office is requesting that Trump, Don Jr., Eric, and Ivanka all be barred from borrowing money or conducting business in the state. They would also have to pay back the $250 million they allegedly obtained illegally. James also warned her investigation may lead to criminal charges for the former president. We believe the conduct alleged in this action also violates federal criminal law, including issuing false statements to financial institutions and bank fraud. And we are referring those criminal violations that we've uncovered to the United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York and the Internal Revenue Service. In an interview with Fox News, former President Trump responded to the charges. She campaigned on it four years ago. It was a vicious campaign, and she just talked about Trump, and we're going to indict him, we're going to get him. This was just a continuation of a witch hunt that began when I came down the escalator at Trump Tower. Also, and also on Wednesday, an appeals court ruled the Justice Department can resume reviewing classified documents seized from Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. This all comes as a special master appointed to review the files has given Trump until next Friday to back up his claims that he declassified the documents and that the FBI planted evidence in the search. Joining me to discuss this and more, Peter Baker, the chief White House correspondent for the New York Times and co-author of the new book, The Divider. Yigo Lau, a congressional reporter for The Guardian, and Vivian Salama, national security reporter for The Wall Street Journal. And joining me here in studio, just the two of us, Nancy Cortez, the chief White House correspondent for CBS News. So thank you all for being here. Yigo, it's your first time on Washington Week, so I'm going to start with you. Also, of course, because of your expertise on all of these legal challenges. When you look at the problems that, the legal problems that former President Trump is facing, just looking at this week, what do you think are possibly the most serious right now and in the long term? I mean, the two charges, the potential charges that came up this week, I think are really significant, both the uh, New York State AG uh, civil suit, but also 
the DOJ's criminal investigation into his mishandling of classified documents, uh, which were kind of stashed around at Mar-a-Lago, I think they're both equally quite potent. I mean, if you look at the state AG suit, um, that would really end the Trump organization in its current form, right? I mean, it would permanently bar Trump and his adult children from uh, holding executive office uh, in, in any company in New York. And that would basically end the family real estate empire. And of course, now that there's a referral to the Southern District of New York, there's potential federal charges. But the fact that the DOJ has now regained access to those 100 documents marked classified in that Mar-a-Lago investigation is also really significant because that's the primary evidence uh, in, when, when they're investigating the potential willful retention of national defense information and the obstruction of justice charges that are really on Trump's doorstep now. And I think the combination of those two really were a double whammy for him this week. Uh, there, that is definitely a double whammy. And Peter, I want to come to you first. Congratulations on your new book with your wife's Susan, um, in your book, The Divider, you conclude that Trump, quote, emerged from a 7 million vote defeat, two impeachments, and the January 6th insurrection as the dominant force in the Republican Party. When you look at all of the reporting that you did on how Trump operates, how does that connect to the legal challenges that he's facing right now and, and the fact that he's accused of fraud and of, of course, allegedly unfairly and, and illegally taking these classified documents um, to his home? Yeah, it's rather extraordinary, right, that through all these troubles, he actually seems to be perfectly healthy within the Republican Party, that he still has such a strong base there. Look, you know, what's really interesting in the through line in our book, the divider, what we saw again and again was a president who tried to bend reality to shape what he wanted to be, right? And this is the heart of what Letitia James is accusing him of in these in this lawsuit, that basically he makes up facts to suit whatever his interests are at the moment. I want to tell you, you, th you think my apartment is only 10,000 square feet? I'm telling you it's 30,000 square feet. You think it's only worth X? I'm going to tell you it's worth 10 times that. Whatever uh, facts he tried to uh, uh, put in the public space, he insists are real, and he insists that people bend to his desires. We saw that in his presidency from the day one when he told us there were larger crowd sizes at his inauguration than ever, ever in history, which wasn't true, all the way to the end when he told us the election was stolen, which also wasn't true. So this is a through line, I think. But you're right. He continues to be very strong among Republicans, maybe not quite as strong as he was. There may be some fatigue factors setting in, and it depends on where these investigations go. But what he has done successfully, this is why we call the book The Divider, is to make this about dividing the country by telling base, they're out to get me because they're out to get you. That's been his successful approach now for five, six years. And you know, I want to come back to you when you're when we're thinking of Peter's laying out sort of the approach that, that Trump has. There, it's a two for a question about the future. One, if Letitia James is successful, can't he just move his businesses to Florida? And then how important is the criminal referral that she's talking about, even if he can move his businesses? Well, he can try and move his businesses. I think the I think what Letitia James was saying at a press conference and kind of we spoke to her team afterwards is that certainly his business empire in New York would be at an end. And he can still move his businesses to Florida, but he wouldn't be able to do any sort of business dealings in New York. He still couldn't get any commercial real estate if he wanted to have an outpost there. He couldn't get any sort of uh, you know loans. Uh, but I think the fact that that referral has gone out to the Southern District kind of complicates things, even if he wanted to move to somewhere like Florida, because then he has to answer kind of federal charges if, you know, uh, Bragg's office decides to investigate. I mean, bank fraud is, is the referral that's been made to the Southern District of New York. That's really serious. I mean, that's a potential 30-year, maximum 30-year jail sentence uh, if, he's, if he's convicted on something like that. And as kind of, you know, Peter mentions, the 11,000 to 30,000 uh, square feet that gaps in valuations. I mean, either your apartment is 11,000 
square feet or it's 30,000 square feet. It's one or the other. And if you're using that to make material misrepresentations to financial institutions, I mean, that's as clear cut as it gets. And I think that's what's going to kind of cause him problems down the line. And Nancy, talking about uh, sort of former President Trump, we have to talk about his response. He went on Fox News, um, but he also went online and wrote this about New York Attorney General Letitia James. He said, another witch hunt by a racist attorney general. She is a fraud who campaigned on a get Trump platform, end quote. Um, what do you make of Trump's response, given sort of what we know about who he is and what how serious these legal challenges are? Well, I mean, some of the claims are laughable, right? The fact that he can declassify documents with his mind, um, you know, it, it, it's obviously not true. Um, but it, it, it speaks, Democrats would say, to the increasing desperation of a man who uh, is kind of running out of excuses and, and certainly is running right up against the special master um, who his team asked for, who is asking very basic questions like, did you declassify these documents? Uh, who saw you declassify them? When did you declassify them? What process did you go through? And his uh, legal team is not providing answers. This is all bumping up, of course, against the reality of a midterm election and a former president who is suddenly becoming a much bigger issue in that midterm election than a lot of Republicans would have hoped. Yes, as Peter pointed out, he's got his stalwart supporters who are going to be with him no matter what, but he is a turnoff to independents. And uh, what is happening for him, not just in uh, Florida, but now in New York and all the legal challenges he's facing, uh, are propelling him into the spotlight at a time when Republicans would vastly prefer for the economy to be the spotlight in the midterm elections, particularly with some of the big drops in the stock market that we saw this week. Certainly. And, and Vivian, um, to, to get at, of course, now the, the Justice Department um, case that you've been covering very closely, the Justice Department won some big um, wins this, this week. Um, you have them winning the appeal. You also have a lower co court now amending the, the appointment of the special master, saying taking out the classified documents. What is the, the sort of significance of these developments, these legal blows, as we put it, for former President Trump? Well, they're obviously very significant in the fact that the Justice Department can now continue its investigation without having to worry, A, about someone who is not uh, legitimately qualified to be looking at such highly classified documents, to be looking at them, specifically the Trump team lawyers. Um, they were saying that even some uh, officials at DOJ have not even gotten the proper classification uh, that's needed, the, pro the, the proper classification that they need to be able to look at uh, those documents. And so it is a really intricate process that obviously goes to the heart of grave national security interests, according to the Department of Justice. And so that is obviously a win for them. But more broadly, it's interesting to see um, that the, the federal courts are essentially going and saying that this is a matter that cannot continue as far as the president going on and saying that he has declassified something uh, at whim. Obviously, there are very technical issues um, that the president has been citing as far as his ability to declassify. And this is something that the Biden administration is definitely going to be looking at in the coming months because presidents do have a lot of discretion when it comes to declassification. But at the end of the day, uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals, the 11th Circuit said, you know what? Prove it. Uh, you have to prove that you did something to declassify this. You can't just go out there and say, I declassified all of this. One last point, Yamish. Remember that all of this was brought on by the former president himself. Uh, none of these uh, issues would have come to light. The DOJ would have uh, prevented a lot of these details from coming to light and going into the public had President Trump not actually gone after them and sued 
following the search of Mar-a-Lago. And so, so many of these details that we now know are coming and being exposed to the public only because of that lawsuit and because of the fact that there was so much political tension around this particular case. Yeah. And so now yeah. we're seeing it litigated in public. Nancy, you to... I think it's really important, uh, you know, in addition to what Vivian's saying, to point out that even if he were able to produce some kind of proof that he had declassified these documents, that doesn't put him outside the realm of legal jeopardy, yeah. because that still doesn't explain why he had these documents that were the property of the U.S. government that both DOJ and the National Archives had asked for for nearly a year. It doesn't explain why they were sort of in boxes, unsecured, at Mar-a-Lago, yeah. uh, a place that a lot of people had access to. And Peter, there's a lot of discretion, as Vivian put it, in terms of classification and what the president could do. But you've covered a number of administrations, so I just have to ask you, can presidents declassify documents by thinking about them? Yeah, that's the well-known mental telepathy ex exception to the classification <laughs> rules, yeah. Uh, no, obviously not. A, a president obviously does have vast powers as the chief executive in terms of classification, no question. But I think that Nancy's point is exactly right. In some ways, it's a red herring. Obviously, it's important, the classification level of these uh, documents. It's important the special master now is challenging President Trump to put up or shut up when he says he declassified it, but it does not get him off the hook. He does not own these documents, whether they're classified or not. He was not entitled to them, and he was not entitled to tell the government they didn't have them, which yeah. is what he did to lawyers who signed a statement to that to that effect. That brings uh, the issue of obstruction to the core, which is not just about classification. I think we ought to not forget that. Well, Hugo, we also should not forget, to, to Peter's point, the fact that this is moving pretty quickly. There are so many people who were saying that Trump was trying to delay this process, and now there's a special master who is setting deadlines aggressively. What do you make of the timeline here and also the, the, the idea that Trump is being asked to provide real evidence to his claims? Look, I mean, Trump went and tried to get a special master because he thought, in part, it could kind of slow down this investigation. I mean, if you talk to people close to the former president, a lot of his advisors and aides were quite worried about how perilously fast that criminal investigation seemed to be moving. I mean, certainly the lawyers uh, were taken by surprise when Mar-a-Lago got searched. Uh, and in kind of the immediate aftermath, they were kind of searching around for if they could get any insight into what DOJ had and where they were going next. And that was kind of what birthed this whole special master request several weeks late. Uh, and, and the fact of the matter is, he tried to delay it, but then this 11th Circuit Court ruling has kind of upended all of that. You know, he and his lawyers were hoping that if the 100 classified documents um, remained in the play uh, with the special master, then that could take weeks to resolve, right? Because then the lawyers need potential security clearances. There needs to be a way to kind of handle them that the special master can see, and then the Trump lawyers have to be able to see them. And so they were hoping that could remain in play, and this could be stretched on for weeks, if not months. And the fact that the 11th Circuit has now taken these out means the extent of the delay that Trump has been able to get has amounted to nothing more than two and a half weeks, right? And now the DOJ can resume that investigation. Mm -hmm. And and that's really significant. I mean, two weeks is nothing. I mean, I spoke, spoke to a couple of former U.S. attorneys, and they say the kind of the length of time it would take to screw up an investigation of this nature is probably several months. Two weeks just is not going to cut it. And the fact of the matter is now he's going to have to as you say, go before a uh, before the court and say whether or not he actually declassified them, and if he can bring any evidence that the FBI planted this material as he's claiming in public. And my understanding is that he probably can't. Well, it's a lot to watch. We're definitely going to be seeing what evidence, if any, they can bring forward. Um, thank you, Hugo, for sharing your reporting, and thanks for coming on for the first time. We're definitely going to have you back on Washington Week.
Now, this week, there was also big headlines on the international front. On Wednesday, Russian President Vladimir Putin responded to a successful counteroffensive by Ukraine in a televised speech to the, to the Russian people. Putin announced the mobilization of 300,000 troops. He also hinted at his willingness to use nuclear weapons if Ukraine continues to retake territory he believes is now part of Russia. In the event of a threat to the territorial integrity of our country and to defend Russia and our people, we will certainly make use of all weapon systems available to us. This is not a bluff. Later that day, in a speech to the United Nations General Assembly, President Biden addressed Putin's threats. He rebuked him by name and called out Russia's, quote, outrageous acts. He also affirmed the U.S.'s commitment to Ukraine's independence. The United States wants this war to end. On just terms, Ukraine has the same rights that belong to every sovereign nation. We will stand in solidarity with Ukraine. We will stand in solidarity against Russia's aggression, period. So, Vivian, I want to start with you. You've been back and forth to Ukraine. Um, we had you on the show several times um, to talk about it. Tell me a little bit about where the, the war stands right now, especially how, you, how Ukraine has been able to take back some territory and really make gains in this fight. And of course, Russia seeing seeming like it's really struggling here, at least based on the reporting. Well, the simple way to put it is that Western assistance is working. Uh, Ukrainian forces have made some significant and some, some surprising gains in recent weeks. And that is largely due to the fact that the U.S. and its uh, allies in Europe and elsewhere have been pouring billions and billions of dollars of weapons into Ukraine. Uh, this is why the Ukrainian military of today is leaps and bounds better than the Ukrainian army uh, that took on Russian forces in 2014. There's absolutely no comparison. And uh, especially as of late, we've provided these long-range missiles that so many people at home that were watching probably have heard of. These have been a game-changer in these battles, and so they have been able to cap recapture approximately territory the size of Connecticut. Uh, but it's still a slog. The Russian forces still hold a large chunk of, of territory in Ukraine. And now, as you said, uh, President Putin doubling down, saying that uh, he wants to hold these sham referendums, as they're called, because he wants to justify uh, essentially the Russian territorial uh, claims over that, that, the, that territory. But um, a lot of observers looking at this and looking at the fact that he's now uh, trying to call up another 300,000 conscripts and saying, these are desperate moves. They're not moves of someone who's doubling down because he thinks that they're they're winning and he wants to kind of seal the deal. These are moves by someone who's getting desperate. Uh, and all signs are pointing to that. Uh, the last couple of days have been really interesting in Russia to watch. We've seen uh, men of conscription age fleeing the country by land, by air, anything they can. There was a spike in Google searches for how to break an arm because young men were afraid, wow. uh, reportedly afraid to, to sign up for the military. Um, and a lot of these young men know that they're going into this fight essentially to their death because of the fact that the Ukrainian forces are starting to make gains. And that is starting to get back to people in Russia, despite the fact that they have such a grip on the media. And so that is where things stand. And it's a long way to go for the Ukrainians and for the Russians, but um, but the Ukrainians are making gains. And that's something that uh, certainly people at the UN this week and in Washington are cheering. 
And Peter, you lived in Russia. I wonder what you make of Putin's strategy here. And I'm also really interested in the fact that you've been talking to Russians um, who, who will say that there hasn't been a lot of talk about the war on TV, but we're now seeing arrests um, for people who are protesting Putin, essentially trying to draft people into the military so that he can try to continue to fight this war. I think it's exactly right. And Vivian, Vivian puts her finger on an important point here. Up until now, he has basically tried to shield the Russian public from this idea of a war. Doesn't even allow them to call it a war. It's just a special military operation. And I talked to a friend in Moscow last week who said, yeah, nobody here would even tell you they, they know much about the war at all. I, I talked to people and they say, you know, what war? I ask them, what about this? They don't know anything about it. He has he tried to pretend in effect that this wasn't happening. Well, when you call up 300,000 men, and it may be in fact more, uh, and you're reaching into these villages, into families, and you're taking away their husbands and sons and fathers, that has a different impact. That means the war is actually coming home to them. And that's a danger for President Putin, I think. That's a that's a point where people are starting to ask the question, well, why are we doing this? You know, my colleagues talked to the wife of a 38-year-old man, father of five, who suddenly put on a bus, has no military experience, not a member of the reserves, being shipped off for what will be 15 days worth of training to be sent into a war, basically cannon fodder. That is not a prescription uh, for victory. That is not, in fact, the sign of a healthy uh, government, by the way. And that, that brings up questions about Putin's own staying power at some point. And that these protests may only be the beginning of something larger. And then there's the other side of the yeah. equation, the, the people who are against the war. The other side are the hardliners who think that Putin has screwed it up from the other side, that he's lost uh, a war that they should have won and embarrassed the country on the international stage. Wow. Um, Nancy, I want to bring you in. You were, you were reporting, of course, at the United Nations. I, we did some research and we realized that in late February, you asked President Biden about how worried Americans should be um, about nuclear threats and nuclear war. And at the time, he said no. What's your sense of the White House's thinking of that threat in particular? And then as the White House thinking about all these new developments? Uh, you know, they don't seem to be that concerned about some of this new rhetoric coming from Vladimir Putin. They say uh, he has been talking this way all along. Uh, he's, you know, he's always bellicose. He's always making these sort of veiled threats. They don't see anything in the intelligence that leads them to believe that he's any more likely to unleash nuclear weapons now than he was uh, six months ago when I asked President Biden that question. Doesn't mean that they're not concerned at all about the prospect. Anytime you've got world powers all focusing in one area, the possibility for some kind of misunderstanding, um, uh, you know, and some kind of escalation always has to be a concern. Uh, but they don't see anything right now that leads them to be more worried than they were a month or two ago. And what are you hearing about President Biden's thinking when it comes to aid to Ukraine? Obviously, the United States has given a lot of aid to Ukraine, but also the American public. There are other things on their minds, and this right. could become a liability. Well, they argue it's working. Uh, and in fact, they've, they've sped up their pace of, of, of aid. Every couple of weeks now, we're seeing a new tranche of uh, weaponry, artillery going to the Ukrainians because they argue, look, uh, we're turning the tide of the war here with the material that we're giving them. And they're not seeing a lot of pushback from members of Congress, particularly at a moment where we're heading into October and most of these members are focused on their races back home. And Vivian, I want to come to you. We, we talked to you, our producers talked to you about sort of the enthusiasm and potential for waning support among Americans. What are you hearing there? Because obviously this aid has been critical to Ukraine. There is a growing concern, Yamish, on the Hill that um, House Republicans are starting to uh, find uh, that their constituents want other priorities. They see billions of dollars going to Ukraine and 
uh, all the while they can't afford gas, they can't afford groceries. And so they are coming under pressure, increasingly so. And I've spoken to dozens now of moderate Republicans in the House who tell yeah. me uh, that they're just concerned that at this at some point, perhaps after the election, and especially if uh, Republicans gain control of the House, that there's going to be a lot more pushback for that, those aid packages to Ukraine. And so that is definitely something to watch as we go into the coming month. It's certainly something to watch and definitely top of mind when I talk to White House officials thinking about sort of what the American public thinks about a war that has been on in headlines, but also a war um, that is very much sort of taking away resources in some people's minds, at least from other things that the United States can be spending its money on. So thank you so much to our panel for joining us and for sharing your reporting. And don't forget to watch PBS News Weekend on Saturday for the latest on the ground in Puerto Rico as the island continues to recover from Hurricane Fiona. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yamiche Alcindor. Good night from Washington.